With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Still a lot of news going on in Washington, D.C. Got to talk about impeachment, but there's also news about trade deals. The economy is booming. Presidential politics as uh, next year is the election. A lot of different things to get into. So I thought I would bring on once again Phil Kirpin who is the president of AmericanCommitment.org and, of course, a big-time political commentator. And, Phil, thank you once again for coming on the Florida Roundtable. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start with impeachment? The articles of impeachment, obviously, are out and everything. And what did you think about the Democrats' case? Well, I thought it was astonishingly weak, frankly. You know, I kept kind of waiting for, okay, maybe the next hearing is going to be the one where they unveil the really damaging, devastating evidence. Maybe it'll be the next one. Maybe it'll be the next one. And and then they said, we're done. And it's like, wait, what, you are? Huh? Wait, that's it? That's all you have? And basically, um, they have no more evidence against the president than what was in the, you know, the call record, uh, the the uh, transcript that the president himself released. And most people who read that said, wait, that's it. That's all there is. And I think that's why the polling has sort of reflected that, you know, there were a lot more people willing to impeach the president a couple of weeks ago than there are now. It's trending down because I think a lot of people assumed, hey, if they're doing this, they must really have some uh, really devastating evidence. And... When they said, that's it, we're wrapping it up, we're sending it out to the Senate uh, without revealing, you know, any real bombshell. I think a lot of people said, hey, wait a second, they, they didn't have it. They didn't have the goods and they did this anyway. Yeah, and there's a lot of criticism on the Democrats for sort of rushing this. It seems like it's gone by pretty quickly where, you know, the Bill Clinton impeachment, I think Ken Starr was investigating for, what, a couple of years before they actually went down the road of impeachment. And this one, it's been uh, how long? Just a few weeks uh, why do you think the Democrats are doing that? Well, I think that uh, this wasn't really something that the leadership wanted to do. Nancy Pelosi had resisted for a couple of years efforts to impeach the president. Remember that the, uh, the sort of the left flank of their party wanted to do this uh, since Election Day of 2016, even before inauguration. And you kind of look at how they've been building this momentum. They've had three previous impeachment attempts in the House. Uh, the first one, they tried to impeach the president for calling NFL players, uh, you know, names for kneeling during the national anthem. They got 58 votes to impeach him for that, and then they had a vote on impeaching him for uh, the um, impeaching him for uh, the. Uh, they, I, I don't even remember what the second one was at the moment. It was something <laughs> equally comically stupid. But the third one, 
was just this past July they had a vote on impeaching him for saying uh, Ilhan Omar should go back to where she came from. Uh, they said that was a high crime and misdemeanor. That got 95 votes. And so uh, even before they had any kind of even remotely plausible pretext for an impeachment, they had almost half of the House Democrats who wanted to impeach in July before the Ukraine phone call or any of this other stuff. Just for the Ilhan Omar treat, they, the tweet, they had about half of the House Democrats voted to impeach, including, by the way, Jerry Nadler. The chairman of the House Judiciary Committee had already voted to impeach the president in July for his tweet about Ilhan Omar, and I'm not joking and I'm not exaggerating. Uh, You can go back and look it up. That was in July. And I think that uh, we got to the point where when they got this whistleblower complaint and they they had this thing sort of lined up with Schiff staff, um, Nancy Pelosi just couldn't resist it anymore. She couldn't block it anymore as much as she thought it wasn't necessarily politically wise to do. There was just too much demand and and, uh, pent-up energy from the liberal base that that wanted this to happen and you know once she decided to go once she said go and by the way she said go before the transcript was released and then it was released that next day by the president and uh you know if i i think um if the sequence had been the other way if he'd released it the the day before maybe she would have been able to go back to her base and said look uh, there's nothing here we can't do it but she was already committed And I think the reason the Democrats rushed this through is uh, they felt committed. They felt that they already had, because of their public statements and how far out on a limb they were, all of the downside associated with being for impeachment in terms of independence, uh, shift moving away, and Republicans being angry. And if they gave up, if they pulled the plug, uh, then they would lose their own base. And so they said, hey, you know what, we're already committed. We've got to follow through and do this because – Um, we've already got the downside attached to us. Let's at least have the benefit of an energized and appreciative liberal base. And I think that's why uh, they decided to to follow through. But because there was so little substance to it, uh, they just wanted to rush and get it done as quickly as possible and and keep that base happy. And what do you think the trial in the Senate is going to end up looking like? I think what it'll probably look like is sort of like an appeals court. It'll basically look like, uh, you know, so you'll see lawyers uh, basically making the equivalent of a, of, of a motion. Uh, and I, I don't think they'll call it a motion to dismiss. They'll probably just call it an acquittal. But I don't think you're going to see new fact evidence. I don't think you're going to see new witnesses. I think what you'll basically see is the House impeachment managers will present their case weak as it is. And then some very good lawyers uh, led by the White House counsel will basically make the argument, look, even if all of these facts were true, which, of course, we're not conceding they are, but even if all these facts were true, they do not constitute a high crime or misdemeanor under the Constitution. And as a matter of law, uh, there is no prima facie case here for impeachment, and, and therefore you should acquit. And I think they'll basically shred the legal basis of this impeachment for a week or two, and then they'll vote to acquit. That would be my expectation, because I think it's an extraordinarily weak case on the law, even if the even if you stipulate uh, the facts that the Democrats want to assert, uh, which, of course, you know, the president denies a lot of them. But even, even if the facts were, even if he did ask Ukraine to investigate the Bidens and condition date on that, which I think there's very little evidence he did, but even if he had done that, it's very hard, I think, to make a legitimate case that that's a high crime or misdemeanor under the Constitution. And I think uh, they're going to fail on that basic legal question in the Senate, and we're going to get a relatively quick acquittal. Yeah, do you think that's why they did not add bribery uh, in the actual articles of impeachment? I mean, they put it in the report later, but in the two articles, it's just abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. There's a lot of talk about bribery or something like that, and they didn't end up adding it. Do you think it's because they felt like they didn't have a case? 
Well, I think it's um, the whole, it's a political exercise uh, anyway because of you know no one thinks there's any chance of a Senate conviction and removal from office. So this is really about sort of messaging and positioning. And uh, even if they have some statute that says bribery is offering anything of value and so an inducement, you know, I, we've all heard their theory, but every normal person hears the word bribery and thinks it means taking money to do something for someone. Uh, and and clearly. You know, the president's a billionaire. He's not doing anything for money. The idea that he could be bribed is a little bit ridiculous. And I just it doesn't fit uh, even the fact that they're alleging. And so I think it came out of some focus groups and polling that the Democrats were doing and said, oh, you know, people don't care what quid pro quo is. But bribery sounds really bad. They're totally against bribery. And they started using it for a week or two, uh, coached by the media into using it, by the way. Um, but then they kind of realized, wait a second, but if we accuse him of that, we need to actually prove that that's what he did. And uh, he didn't. And so that's going to blow up in our face. And I think that's why they backed away from that. Although, you know, I think they, they took so much uh, they, they took so much damage, messaging damage on the fact that they never alleged any actual crime uh, when they were voting the impeachment out of committee that I think that's why they circled back at the last minute with that report that said, no, actually, we do think he committed bribery because I think they were worried about um, you know, this, hey, you're impeaching him and you haven't even accused him of a crime. So they said, okay, well, we'll accuse him of a crime. Weak though that accusation is. I'm speaking with Phil Kirpin. He's president of American Commitment, also a political commentator. And you were saying before that uh, there was no evidence that the president actually committed a crime, even if he did make a dealing with Ukraine. We do know that the aid was withheld for a time why do you think that aid was being held up? Well, look, this is a president who is extremely skeptical of foreign aid in general and of sort of the business as usual in Washington, that the checks just go out the door and they're blank checks and we don't really watch where the money's going or ask for anything in return. And I think, you know, this is a president who would prefer not to continue with that kind of business as usual. And if you look at sort of the record uh, from OMB in particular, what they produced to explain the pause, uh, what they basically said is the president wanted an assurance that we weren't going to be the only country that was sending aid. He wanted to know that European countries were also sort of doing their part, sharing their burden, much like the criticisms he's made uh, in the NATO context of defense budgets. And uh, there was, in fact, a report from OMB to the president uh, detailing the amounts from each of the other countries going to Ukraine uh, to satisfy that concern of his uh, prior to when the funds were released. And so that is the the uh, alternative explanation uh, that Republicans explained in the committee. And frankly, you know, that makes sense to me, the idea that this is a president who wasn't just going to say, hey, well, you know, the, the money's appropriate. I'm sending it right over. He wanted to kind of make sure we weren't the only country giving. And the other thing uh, that the administration has said is, uh, you know, they didn't just want to take it on the guy's word that the new president was going to be an anti-corruption fighter just because he had campaigned on that. Uh, they wanted to wait a little bit and watch what he was actually doing and you know, give him a month or two in office uh, before releasing the aid. So there were uh, multiple valid policy rationales for the pause in aid. At the end of the day, um, you know, they got the money. They didn't open any, any investigation. Uh, they didn't do a press conference or an interview on CNN. And so the idea that there was some sort of illicit conditionality is very hard to prove, even if you're, you want to put a lot of weight into what Ambassador Sondland said when he said, you know, the president never said there was a quid pro quo, but uh, that was my presumption, 
Well, you know, maybe some people presumed that that was it. That may have been, you know, that may have been part of the president's uh, reasoning. We don't know. There were also multiple other legitimate reasons that he was withholding the aid. And, you know, that also raises another serious question with the Democrats' whole legal theory here, because if, you know, let's say there was a partial political motivation, along with these other policy rationales behind what the president is doing, do we want to say every time the president considers politics at all in a decision, even if he has other legitimate policy reasons for, for uh, pursuing that decision, it somehow transforms it into criminal and impeachable, uh, you know, because the vast majority of everything every president does, the political implications are at least one consideration, one input. And so I think that, um, you know, to me, even if they do prove that he was concerned about politics, I, I don't see how that makes it a high crime or misdemeanor or different from the way every president thinks about, you know, every decision they make. Have about a minute left in this segment. I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell all the listeners about American commitment and what you do for them. Hey, yeah, we're a national free market advocacy group. We work really on all the fiscal, economic, and regulatory issues is our principal focus. Sometimes there are other issues that just dominate everything that's happening, and you can't avoid weighing in on them like this impeachment thing. But we do try to focus more on the economic side of things. And what we try to do is uh, sort of pick the fights that could go either way, uh, that are sort of on the margin, where a little bit of citizen education, engagement, uh, activity can make a difference and get more conservative outcomes. And so we do a lot of um, you know, we do a lot of action alerts with sort of 200 word explanations of what's happening and telling you to send a letter to Congress or to a regulatory agency or to the White House. Um, but we don't just ask you to do stuff because we want to ask you for money or put you on a mailing list. We really we ask for actions that we think can actually make a difference in in terms of uh, you know policy debate going one way or the other. And, and all our stuff is on our website, AmericanCommitment.org. All right, we're going to talk about some of those issues you just mentioned in the next segment. Phil Kirpin with American Commitment. I'll continue my conversation with him in a moment. Impeachment is dominating the news, but believe it or not, Democrats and Republicans were able to agree on one thing, and that's the USMCA trade deal, that trade deal that is supposed to replace NAFTA. We'll see if that finally gets passed in the long run. We're going to talk about the economy and more. Right now with Phil Kirpin, who is the president of AmericanCommitment.org. And Phil, it was uh, kind of uh, interesting how they had put forward the articles of impeachment. And then on the same day, they had a bipartisan agreement on trade to replace NAFTA. What do you make of that? Well, I think it means that uh, Democrats are really in fear of this idea that they've done nothing but impeachment uh, to the ex exclusion of dealing with any of the policy priorities of the American people. And, uh, you know, it was a, I think it was a little bit of a political balancing test for them. Uh, do they want to hand the president a huge policy win, a victory on one of his signature issues? Um, they probably didn't want to do that. But on the other hand, uh, they thought that the, they, they were more afraid of the attack of them just blocking everything and doing no policy work while they were obsessed with impeachment. And I think that's why they ultimately said, you know what, we've got to go ahead with this deal, particularly for our more moderate members, so that when they do get attacked, <coughs> excuse me, for voting for impeachment and not accomplishing anything, they can say, hey, we worked with the president when we agreed with him. We delivered this great trade deal, this upgrade to NAFTA. And the other thing I think in particular uh, is Democrats really didn't want to go into the election being the party of keeping NAFTA exactly as is with no changes, because that would have opened them up, I think, to really damaging attacks from the president and from his allies. And so that's why I think they made the determination to do this. But 
it means, Michael, we might have a very strange spectacle of the same week the president is impeached or the week following the president being impeached by Nancy Pelosi. We could see her at the White House at a signing ceremony, <clears throat> excuse me, celebrating, celebrating the uh, passage of this trade deal, uh, which would be very awkward, I think. But, you know, I think it would it would um, it would probably be smart for the president to invite her and act like it's business as usual and just totally ignore the impeachment, which would only show, I think, even more how ridiculous and disingenuous and political it was. Because, I mean, if you think someone's this great, horrible threat to the world and has to be removed from office as soon as possible, why would you pass his signature trade deal and then go celebrate it with him? So it's going to put her, I think, in an awkward spot. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I want to get into more of the political implications, you know, the upcoming elections and how they'll be affected by impeachment in a moment. But I also want to get your take on the trade deal itself. Are you a supporter of it? I'm a uh, I'm sort of a lukewarm supporter. I uh, was a bigger supporter before this last round of changes. Uh, you know, one of the things that Nancy Pelosi demanded that I just found shocking is, uh, you know, the, the president had won a very hard fought provision in this agreement to get uh, Canada and Mexico to essentially lengthen the patent lives. It's actually not the patent. It's something called data exclusivity, but essentially to give longer intellectual property protections to biological drugs, which are the expensive biotech drugs, most of which are developed in the United States. And, uh, you know, one of the big policy issues that the president's been dealing with is this problem where other countries pay much less for drugs than we do. We're basically carrying the freight of the R&D costs for new drugs, which is billions of dollars for each new drug. And the rest of the world, uh, you know, they're bringing generics in very quickly after just a couple of years, or they're putting price controls there in a variety of ways, free riding off of us. And the president convinced Canada and Mexico to give 10 years of exclusivity to innovator drugs that are biotech drugs, biological drugs. And uh, that was huge. It means they're going to pay higher prices for breakthrough drugs for a decade than they're currently paying. And of course, that would help cover R&D costs. It would be very beneficial for U.S. companies and U.S. consumers. And you can imagine how difficult it is to convince other countries to pay more for drugs. It's almost impossible. So the fact we got them to agree to that was remarkable. And then Nancy Pelosi demanded that get taken out. She hates the drug company so much that she doesn't want them to make more money, even if it's making more money from other countries, which I found pretty astonishing. And so, you know, that was one of my favorite provisions of the original deal, which has now come out. So that was disappointing. But there's still uh, a lot of significant improvements uh, in this deal uh, to NAFTA. It, it will significantly expand agricultural access. So we'll get a, you know an increase of billions of dollars in agricultural exports. The intellectual property protections are significantly strengthened, which is going to help our creative industries a lot. Um, you know, which is of course you know a major growth industries now for for tech as well as entertainment, video games, movies, that kind of thing. Uh, I think that. Uh, yeah, you, know, you look at what they were. Uh, you look at what they were able to do in the energy sector. Uh, they have total zero tariff trade in energy products, uh, which is going to be really beneficial, I think, at a time where where the U.S. energy industry is really, really booming. Even though you know Canada and Mexico are also significant producers, which means you know there's sort of flows in both directions. Uh, it's going to be good for consumers, I think, as well. So we're not going to tariff any of the Mexican or Canadian energy products, and so I think overall. Um, it's a significant improvement from NAFTA. 
Uh, I'm disappointed they Nancy Pelosi insisted on removing that provision on biological drugs, which I just thought was insane. When you actually get other countries to agree to pay more for drugs, the idea we took that out was very disappointing. Uh, but overall, I think it's a significant improvement on NAFTA. And, and, uh, and, and in addition to there being a lot of improvements in a lot of these areas, it's great to take the risk of a breakdown in North American trade off the table. And, and if these negotiations had failed and NAFTA had been scrapped or something like that, that would have been massively disruptive to economic growth and to, to uh, you know jobs in all three countries. And so the fact that it's been resolved, uh, if it is in fact resolved, Mexico actually has some issues with one of the other things Nancy Pelosi demanded, which is U.S. labor inspectors going into Mexican facilities. And so uh, it, we're even though we have a deal now in the U.S. side, there there is still a little bit of a question whether Mexico will, will go along with that. But I think that, that Pelosi is now committed enough that even if that provision had to come out, I think uh, that, that would not uh, undo her support for the deal at this point. So I think the president's got... Uh, the support to get this through in the United States, and uh, you know that's not just that's a huge policy win for him. It's going to take a lot of downside economic risk off the table because there's no danger now of the whole thing of the negotiations totally collapsing. Um, and I do think substantively in areas like uh, energy, agriculture, manufacturing, uh, it is an incremental improvement over NAFTA, and it's a significant improvement on intellectual property and digital trade and you know other sort of areas that NAFTA really was out of date. I just didn't deal with things that had developed in you know in the decades since, and so I'm I'm pretty bullish on it overall. But I am, you know, very disappointed that one of my favorite provisions in it was removed uh, at Nancy Pelosi's insistence. It's kind of strange that that provision was removed because theoretically, couldn't that lower drug prices for us because yeah, they're getting money could. from other yeah. countries? Yes, yes, it could, and. Um, more to the point, the U.S. already has 12 years of data exclusivity, so our agreeing to 10 years has no impact on us. It, is only, it, it only raises them up closer to us. It, it does not have any impact on, uh, you know, on when generic biologics can be introduced in the United States. And so it was very strange. Uh, it, it, the only way to understand it is that she despises the drug companies so much that she's against anything that makes them money, even if it's from other countries. Well, it could be... I mean, I'm just speculating, but it could be as well that Democrats still want to point us towards more government control, and that would get in the way of this. Maybe I'm a little too cynical there, but what do you think about that? Well, uh, we know what Nancy Pelosi's uh, solution to the drug pricing issue is, because they passed a bill in the House that did this. Her bill just has government set the price of drugs uh, at whatever they want it to be, and if the manufacturers don't want to go along with that, they get taxed at 95% of the previous year's gross sales, which essentially is like an economic death penalty. And so her solution to drug pricing is basically, you know, politicians and bureaucrats should just make up the price. Um, of course, if you do that, you're going to crater research and development because who's going to spend billions of dollars developing a product that the government gets to decide how much you charge for it and could set a very low price that you'll never make any money. And so uh, she has a an extremely heavy-handed, government-centered vision on how to deal with the uh, the drug price issue. And uh, you might be right that she's against any more market-oriented approach that might actually have a positive impact on drug prices because she wants to keep making the case for just having government totally take it over. Yeah, I have about a minute and a half here, and that brings us to another topic, uh, Medicare for all. I mean, does this, It's if the Democrats actually win, do you think something like that could actually pass? 
Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the helpful aspects of the Democratic presidential debates has been uh, that they've really, I think, exposed how little disagreement there is among Democrats on this issue. You've basically got the out and proud socialists, uh, Warren and Sanders, who say, hey, we want to ban all private insurance, put everyone in a government plan, have a totally government run system and do it as fast as possible. And, uh, you know, they are, uh, you know, sort of the other wing of the Democratic Party that the media wants to tell us are moderates or people like Biden and uh, Buttigieg who are saying, hey, uh, we want to eventually get to a single payer system where everyone's in a government plan, but we want to get there more gradually where we have a public option that competes with the private plans. And then we sort of tilt the playing field. And over time, everyone moves into the government plans. And then the private plans are all gone before they even realize politically what we did to them. And it's like, well, wait a second, you're basically saying you want to go the same place as the other Democrats. You just want to be dishonest about it. You just want to deceive people while you're doing it. And so I think it's pretty clear um, that, you know, if you have if you have unified Democratic control, if the Democrats have the White House, the House and the Senate, uh, the next time that happens, they're going to set us on a path to a government run single payer Medicare for all type health care system. And we'll continue this conversation in a moment. I'm speaking right now with Phil Kirpin, who is the president of American Commitment. You can find out more about them at AmericanCommitment.org. In the last segment, we were talking about the new trade deal with Mexico and Canada. But China has also been in the news because Trump has sort of come to an agreement with them. He says it's phase one of a trade deal with them. What does this mean for the future of their economy? and our economy. And Phil, what do you think so far about uh, what Trump, the deal that Trump has made with China so far? Well, uh, I'm very pleased to see that we're not going to have those tariffs go in on all those consumer products, because I think that would have been harmful both economically and politically uh, to, to have those. And the other previous rounds of tariffs haven't really touched consumer goods. But the one that was slated to go in this week, if they hadn't reached a deal, it would have had all the consumer electronics in there. And so it would have been very noticeable, I think, uh, for a lot of people, particularly lower income people where, you know, getting hit by you know, an extra tariff uh, would have been pretty noticeable in prices. And so I'm glad they were able to uh, get an agreement, uh, you know, before that went into effect. Uh, of course, the potential is still that this agreement will collapse and uh, the president will have to escalate in some way. Uh, the agreement, at least as announced, is very promising. Uh, apparently, the, uh, apparently the Chinese have made concessions that they're going to stop stealing our intellectual property and requiring forced technology transfers. They're going to significantly increase agricultural purchases. They're going to open up their financial services sector to U.S. banks and payment companies. And, uh, you know, all of that sounds great and wonderful. Of course, the problem is I'm not sure you can trust anything that the Chinese say. And so the fact they're promising to do all these things and address kind of all of the persistent ways they cheat um, doesn't mean they actually will make meaningful changes. And, you know, some things are are easy to tell. You know, they're either going to increase agricultural purchases or they're not. Some of these other things, are they going to stop stealing technology and ripping things off? And, you know, these other promises they made, well, you could say you are and then not. So that's, I think, a big big challenge there is going to be what's actually enforceable in terms of the commitments that they've made. And there is apparently a dispute resolution chapter in this new agreement. I'm not sure exactly how that will work. Uh, it's going to be some sort of a you know bilateral um, 
you know, consultation or something like that. Basically, we're going to tell them we think you're cheating, and then they're supposed to stop the cheating. But, you know, again, uh, it depends on a level of trust that I'm not sure they, they have earned or deserved. And so I'm pleased that we were able to reach an agreement. I think that some de-escalation is a positive. It sounds like they're committing to do a lot of really good things. Uh, but I say, you know, it, trust but verify, or I don't even trust, I verify. And so we need to, I think, watch – you know uh, what their if their behavior actually changes in all these areas where they've made commitments, and uh, you know I'm sure the president and uh, his people at U.S. Trade Representative are going to be watching that very very closely. And frankly, don't be surprised sometime you know in the next few months or over the next year if we find out they're not making good on these commitments and those tariffs do go into effect and the president shows that he's not going to be pushed around uh, or, or taken advantage of. And so um, I don't know that we're really going to get all the things they've promised yet. I think that as long as President Trump is in there, and if, especially if he has a second term and has four more years to work this relationship, uh, eventually they're going to see it's in their best interest to actually stop these abuses uh, because the president otherwise is not going to back down. Um, but I remain a little bit skeptical that they're going to make good on all these promises they made in this agreement. So I think it's, we're going to have to wait and see, I think. So do you think tariffs is the only way and the threat of tariffs is the only way to get China to change? Well, you know, I'm I'm a big free trade guy, and so I'm very skeptical of tariffs. Uh, they're very expensive, and they certainly have uh, imposed an, an economic burden on the U.S. economy, uh, which is very, very strong, but but could be even stronger, I think, uh, absent those tariffs, although uh, the Chinese have paid a significant portion of it um, by devaluing their currency. Uh, that said, you know, We've been talking about getting tough on China for a long time and through a lot of presidents, and none of their behavior has changed. And it looks like um, you know, the president's tactics, as much as I don't like the economic implications of them you know, while the tariffs are on, uh, it certainly seems to have gotten the attention of the Chinese communists, and uh, they, they seem to understand the stakes and the need uh, to at least act as if uh, they're making you know, real structural changes. And so... Um, you know, I think the, the I think the verdict is still out. I think we need to see how it all gets resolved to know if it was you know, to decide whether it was worth it or not. But I can say that there's been more change and more progress on uh, you know dealing with uh, China, China's abusive economic policies under President Trump than there have been over the last you know four or five presidents combined. And speaking of trade deals, another country that we might have a trade deal with in the future is Great Britain, the United Kingdom, if they actually go through with Brexit, which it seems like they will after these last elections. Uh, do you think that's a possibility? Well, look, I mean, both uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Trump have said they want to do a deal and they want to do it quickly. Uh, Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, was out just this past week talking about that and how they think they can do it quickly. And frankly, um, negotiating an agreement with the United Kingdom should be very easy because they have very high standards. Uh, you know, they have very high protections for intellectual property, for other property rights. Uh, they've got a good rule of law court system. They've got, uh, you, know, you know, obviously an advanced uh, high income economy. And so, uh, in theory, there should be relatively few issues. I mean, you know, I, you could do it on one page and just say, you know, we're going to drop all tariffs and non tariff barriers and have free trade between us. Of course, it never is quite that simple. Uh, but you could have. I think something negotiated pretty quickly uh, that's very advantageous for both countries. And uh, I would certainly like to see that done uh, both economically and I would love to see it done politically if it could be done ahead of this election. I think, uh, you know, that could be a huge positive uh, for, for the president to show, look, I'm not just getting tough on, 
on our sort of rivals and countries that cheat us like uh, China, but I'm also reaching out to friends and expanding economic opportunity that way. I'm speaking with Phil Kirpin of AmericanCommitment.org, and you just mentioned the next election. Do you think that impeachment actually hurts or helps Trump get reelected next year? I think it helps them. Look, I think that uh, the hardcore haters, the resistance people, the Trump derangers, um, they were always going to vote. They were always going to do everything they can to get everyone possible to vote against the president. The, the, if Democrats had not impeached, they might have lost a little bit of that enthusiasm, and uh, those people might not be as pumped up as they are right now. But frankly, uh, those people are too small a number to make the difference in the election outcome. And if you look at what the president has actually done, uh, economically, you know, he should be in position to easily get reelected, particularly in those key Midwestern states that were the swing states. Uh, you know, the economic performance should be enough, I think, to, to get him elected. And, you know, you don't challenge that by saying, hey, you know, we want to we're, we're going to impeach him. We're going to kick him out of office. That doesn't that doesn't get the swing voter in Michigan or Wisconsin who was leaning Trump to say, hey, you know what, because the House Democrats impeached him on this flimsy Ukraine thing, I'm going to vote against him. It makes them more likely to say, hey, you know what, the Democrats are kind of crazy. Maybe I shouldn't take them seriously or risk disrupting uh, what we've got going on in this country right now and uh, the, the gains that I'm making personally, financially, from this booming economy by, by going with a party that seems unhinged and nuts and obsessed with removing the president. And I think that on the margin, more people are going to be put off by impeachment and uh, kind of pushed in, in the direction of the president than, than people who are uh, you know, up in the air being convinced that he actually did something wrong. I think the, the evidence here is just so flimsy that the main takeaway is going to be uh, you know, they, they, were, they are just consumed with hate for this president and want him out no matter what. And uh, given that everything is going pretty well substantively, you know, the economy is great in particular, I think more voters are just going to kind of say, hey, the Democrats are crazy. We're not going to go with them. Then are going to say the president actually did something wrong and I'm going to vote against him. Phil Kirpin of AmericanCommitment.org. Always an insightful conversation, Phil. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. All right. Thanks for having me.